Hello and welcome to the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer's Mentors podcast. Today we are honoured to speak with Professor Ignace Vigoti, an incredible leader of our field who has had an inspirational career. He is particularly known for chairing the EORTC Gynecological Cancer Research Group, as well as serving as past president of both the ESGO and the IGCS organisations. I am Anna Collins from the University Hospitals of Leicester in the UK. With me today is Nicolo Bizzari from Polyclinico Gemelli in Rome, Kike no. from the University of Navarra in Spain, Irina from Medical University Innsbruck in Austria, uh, Arthur from the National Taiwan University Hospital in Taiwan. Thank you for joining us, Professor Vigoti. Thank you. Perfect. So just to um, start the questions, um, we wondered if you'd be able to tell us about your career path and just share some of the highlights or the most exciting points in your career. By my career path, um, I started um, the School of Medicine in Ghent in, in my country in Belgium and then I did my OBGYN training in Antwerp and then at that time I became very interested in gynecological oncology. At that time the University of Oslo was one of the largest centers in the world because they had a centralization of all cancers in, in Norway. That's why I went for a fellowship for three years then to Norway. Then I came back to the University of Antwerp as gynecological oncologist. At that time, I was the first trained gynecological oncologist in, in Belgium, because uh, that's a long time ago, of course. Uh, nobody had this training. But after a couple of years, two years, I felt um, it was too early for Belgium to have gynecological oncologists. And I was offered a position as staff member in Oslo. So I went back for another seven years to Oslo as staff member. And then seven years later in 1993, I came back to Belgium and was appointed as gynecological oncologist at the University of Leuven. And then the ball kept on rolling. Fantastic. Um, and you've had such an incredible career. We just wondered what values got you where you are today? Oh, a lot. I think you must, well, lucky, you must be lucky. You must be patient uh, and you must uh, be able to work together with other people, I think, and to convince, lastly, but last but not least, to convince other people that you have a good idea and that you will be able to fulfill it and then give the example, of course. For this, of course, you need to have a good university. You need to have a well-organized hospital. And you need to have the capacity in terms of patients, numbers of patients, because you can't succeed if you are working in a small center. Uh, you, of course, you can build it up. It's certainly what also happened in Leuven. But um, you must have the capacity to, that your hospital has the capacity to, to, to be one of the biggest hospitals in, in your region. And that helps, of course. But the other things, are more personal, I think, but the choice of a good hospital is, is essential, and then the team in the, that hospital. Fantastic, that's really great advice. Um, we also wondered, um, what's an essential lesson you've learned along the way as a result of overcoming a challenge? You must be patient. 
and this, the, often it doesn't, you don't, don't succeed the first time. Also, when you have an ID, you want to do a trial, especially with the companies when you, in the development of new drugs, where I also did a lot beside, of course, the surgical trials I did. Um, it's so disappointing. Often in the beginning, you have an ID, you make a synopsis, uh, the companies are interested, but they don't approve it, or you don't have enough money. To do the trial, um, you have to continue and looking for uh, um, the good drug to develop. And if you believe, really believe it can be an advantage for our patients, I think this is very important. Persistent, being persistent, and two, I think what people often forget is listen to the companies, because even if you have the best idea and you can't convince the companies. It's not possible to do it. To listen to which direction they want to go, where you see an opportunity and, and grab the opportunity when you get it. That's for trials with companies, of course. For trials, surgical trials, usually it's fairly clear what you have to do, I think. That's mainly organizational problem to do a large surgical trial. That's uh, more, that's trials which you do for free with personal um, conviction that this should be done and you must bring this conviction to many other scientists, ac academia, that this is the thing they should do and that together you can do it. That's a totally different setting. Com uh, academic trials or surgical trials are usually academic. It's totally different from company trials and the strategy is totally different, I think. Fantastic. Um, what I'll do is just hand over to Arthur for our next question. Thank you so much, Professor Vogelte, for your time and very honored to be here to, to see you. And um, so uh, I'd like to ask him if you could share with us the most unexpected obstacle you'd had to face in uh, your experience. In my experience, the unexpected, unexpected and certainly what I didn't hope for was the recognition of gynecological oncology. I've worked for the, as I said, I was the first gynecological oncologist in Belgium and I worked all my life trying to get this approved in Belgium. And that's one of the things I did not get through. We are accepted as gynecological oncologists in Belgium, uh, but we don't have an official recognition which uh, gives me the feeling that once I retire, and I did last year, about six months ago, I am not sure that uh, what I believe in, in gynecological oncology and in a team that is uh, supporting the patient within gynecological oncology and um, and taking care of the patients in one uniform matter, not the surgeon, the medical oncologist, radiotherapist, but there is one captain on the ship, on the ship and that should be the gynecological oncologist. That's all, always what I've tried to um, convince people of. And uh, this has worked very well in, in my university and also in Oslo where I was and where I learned it. But um, this has, been very difficult to talk to the ministers of health and and uh, to get support from other disciplines and even within the OBGYN 
world to get this through and I did not succeed in that and that's for me the most difficult obstacle uh, which I faced which I could not get through we were very close but we, I did not succeed in that Thank you so much, Professor Vakote, for sharing such experience because uh, this could uh, be a very uh, good experience for uh, our young generation. And uh, so uh, for my next question, I was wondering, uh, uh, serving as past president of both ESCO and IGCS, uh, what's an important leadership lesson you have learned and how has it proven invaluable? It's of course fantastic uh, to become elected by the members of IGCS and ESCO um, and to be able to change a little bit these societies. For ESCO, it really changed very much because ESCO, when Ayn Uzibella took over, was dead. We had no paying members for three years. On no meetings which were successful, 100 people, something like that. So this, we were able to really change and one, make the meeting scientifically interesting and, and two, get members. And uh, three, the third uh, goal we had was to, um, um, to support the development of gynecological oncology in Eastern Europe, to allow for fellowships and then the next steps for the ESCO training uh, fellowship and the and the recognition of, of uh, ESCO affiliated centers for training so that th these were our goals we had to really to fight to get it uh, on track again IGCS was a was a rolling I call it a tanker everything went I could change a little bit um, um, and this is, of course, much more difficult when you are talking about the global society compared with European, because in Europe we are quite close and we have, some, we have much more common goals and, a, and the same system, health system, and the same obstacles. While globally, it's the ideas of North America, Asia, Africa, India, South America, are so different that it's really difficult in two years as president to change. But I tried to do the same things as what I did in, um, in ESCO before that. Was, what I also succeeded, which, what I was proud of, is that um, IGCS at, at that time, the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer, so you know, of course, this uh, journal, and uh, ESCO needed also a journal. So we, uh, ag we agreed at that time when I was president uh, together with the then president Jill and Thomas, that uh, both societies should become owner of the journal and that we would work together to get the journal to a higher level. This is also one of the things I'm proud of that uh, we were able to do. Thank you so much, Professor Rogete, for uh, doing this because uh, we're the uh, IGGC fellows and we are uh, members of um, ESCO, of IGCS, so uh, really thankful for what you have done uh, with both societies. And um, uh, so for my next question, um, how did you first come up with the idea for the Eurotech 55971? Uh, 
because uh, not only did it provide an alternative for ovarian cancer patients, and nowadays in the COVID era, uh, some might consider it as a crucial option uh, for the patients uh, because there might be no theaters during the uh, COVID era. Uh, could you share with us the challenges you faced during and after the trial? And could you share us how you set up with collaboration with the CARS team? Thank you. That's a long question. Um, let me start how it started. Uh, let me start when I came to that idea and why. Um, I was really convinced that good surgery in ovarian cancer is the most challenging, but probably the, at that time in the 80s, the most important step. Uh, that was the time we didn't really have chemotherapy except alkylating agents and, and cisplatin came at that time. So I'm talking a long time ago. And uh, we did a study in our institution, which showed clearly long before the very well-known data of Dubois and all the other ones, uh, that if you have no residual tumor after primary debulking, uh, the prognosis is much better and the, the value of debulking surgery is much, much better than if you have uh, one to 10 millimeters. And at that time we showed that what we called the grams of residual tumor, taking into account the number of residual tumors, we tried to estimate that, that the grams of residual tumor were much more important than the size and that no visible residual tumor was should be the only goal that that was and so we saw of course that in some patients it was not possible to get to an r0 you must remember at that time we all believed in the griffiths old griffiths data from boston that debulking leaving tumors up to two centimeter or later one and a half later one centimeter uh, helped and we didn't believe that so, and then I started treating some patients where I said, I, I can't do uh, the surgery uh, with knee adjuvant. And we were so surprised that it was possible to do the R0 resection after three cycles. So I published that in gynecological oncology, I think 92 or 93, something like that. And uh, that was the time I became, came, became, um, in the steering committee, a member of the steering committee of the EOTC gynecological cancer group. And I tried to convince the EOTC that uh, the neoadjuvant chemotherapy and interval debugging should be an option. At the same time, the EOTC did already a trial, the Van der Broek trial, which showed that uh, interval debugging might have a place. So I combined my personal experience with uh, the experience of the EOTC where the idea was not to give knee adjuvant treatment to make the patients operable or to reduce the morbidity. Um, so, and then of course, cooperation, like I said in the start um, with other centers, trying to convince people for an academic study. I, I traveled the world around trying to convince Taiwanese and Japanese and uh, um, Italian and Austrian centers Maybe I've forgotten some uh, UK synthesis. UK is another story. That's the core story. Um, but we were much more divided at that time. So um, it took a long time. The study I wrote and was accepted in the year to see in 97. I think the publication in the ring is from 2010. So 
it takes a long time to do such a study and also get enough uh, um, uh, follow-up. Um, what was most challenging was the fact that I have always believed in good surgery and radical surgery and that I got the, for me, everybody thought that's the Nyadjivan guy, he doesn't believe in surgery and that I defended bad surgery, which I, has, has been very difficult because I think I've had about 100 debates on congresses, meetings and so on with people who said everybody must get primary debulking. Why I always have defended, you need good surgery and you need to define which is the best timing for this specific patient. And in some patients it's better to do it after knee adjuvant. But if you can do it without a high morbidity at primary debulking, it's better to do it primary. That's, that's, that's my conviction. Uh, the other question was the chorus. Well, um, chorus ex almost copied our protocol. That was very similar. And they started it uh, without me and EOTC really knowing it. Uh, so I invited the chairs of the chorus file and also at that time of the, um, the MRC, Medical Research Council in UK. And we were able to convince them to do a meta-analysis afterwards and to adopt the CRFs, not ECRS at that time, but the CRFs on paper uh, to ours so that we would be able to do a meta-analysis afterwards. And they agreed. And of course, this, there are some differences in the surgery, but, but um, I'm still happy that uh, we were able to publish in Lancet Oncology the joint analysis as well, which then showed that most stage fours probably are better off with knee adjuvant. It's not believed by the believers in primary debulking, and I'm a believer in primary debulking as well, but many say that, that uh, they don't cite this paper a lot, but I think it's confirmed in two, the two largest randomized studies on this topic, so, so I think you can um, um, criticize the adequacy of the surgery. When I showed the first results of the ERTC trial, it was also tricky because the uh, RZ or primary debulking rate from Belgium, which was 95% from my institutions of the patients, um, we had an R0 rate of 60% and, and the uh, and uh, the global study only about 20, 22%. So it was difficult to show the differences from region to region. People didn't like it. They, they, they supported the study. And then afterwards I came, look here uh, in Belgium, we did it much better. It was, was for me reassuring. That's why I'm quite convinced that the trust trial will show the same, is that in Belgium, which was 130 patients, so a large part of the, the total study. In Belgium, the primary debulking and interval debulking survival, overall survival is exactly the same, even though we had a much, much higher primary debulking rate than uh, most other countries. So we'll see what the test shows. Sorry, it was a long answer, but it was a long question as well. <laughs> it was Thank an excellent so answer. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, you said that you were in an era uh, that was more divided, but we believe that because of you, we are more together. <laughs> and now I'm going to hand over it to uh, Nicole.
So thank you very much, Professor Vergotte. Thanks for this nice uh, answer about the RTC trial. And thanks for giving us the opportunity of having this interview for, with us. It's a honor. Thank yes. you. Thank you to Italy. At that time, the study would not have been done without Italy and the Netherlands, because that were the three main countries at that time. Italy, I, I got a lot of support uh, in the RTC. Thank you thank for those who were before you. <laughs> I will thank my mentors for that. <laughs> thank you. Um, we, you are the primary investigator in multiple trials. Could you give the young generation, as we are, tips and recommendations for designing surgical randomized controlled trials? Well, we covered it already a little bit at the start, um, the questions of Anna. Um, I think, um, you must have realistic goals because a study which is not sponsored, which doesn't have the support from the pharmaceutical industry, is uh, is always a very, very challenging. It's always very challenging. So you must have realistic goals. And then, of course, you must have a consortium. That's also the reason why I, uh, with others, started and got. Uh, because uh, you need a close cooperation with a group that started as a group of friends uh, to be able to do such a trial. That's also why I support, for instance, the Groin's trial in vulva cancer, which was not randomized, but, uh, but an observational trial. And despite the fact it was not randomized, uh, it's, it's changed the standard of care because we discussed at that time if other randomization should we do it randomized or not. And he came up with the idea of the, the uh, upper recurrence rates, which we would tolerate in order to continue with the study. Um, and uh, so I think this, when vulva cancer at that time, with the cooperation we had at that time, this was the best solution. So you must look what is feasible. A second tip I would say, try not to do an institutional trial to change standard of care. Even if you are the largest center, in which center do you work, Nicola? Uh, in Gemelli, in Rome, Gemelli Hospital. I think I can say the largest center in, in Italy for the moment with Scambia um, and many others. Um, it's if you come with data only from Gemelli, it will be difficult. Not reproducible also. It should, especially in surgical trials, it must be reproducible and it will also always be criticized. Because, okay, generally they do it that way, but they have a different type of patients, they have a different blah, blah, blah. So, uh, and it's better to do it in Italy, but it's even better to do it in Europe or globally, if you can. But that, of course, you must be able to convince other people and still be the first, because um, that's always a danger when you have an idea which is good. Um, it can be started uh, again in, in another region or another country. But I don't think you should be afraid of that. It's communication. Uh, and if you don't succeed this time, you will succeed next time. It's easy for me to say afterwards when looking back, but... Um, um, Again, cooperation with other institutes or other groups 
is essential and being realistic because the numbers which you hope for you won't get the numbers the centers say they will randomize or will include divide them by three at least thank you thank you for for your answer and i thank for these tips they're really really important for us for our future i completely understand the importance of network and the more I go along, the more I realized. And also, uh, thanks, because sometimes uh, uh, we study a lot and we have many ideas and then we look in the literature and realize that either they've been done already or they're ongoing. So the communication among other centers, it's so important. Um, regard, um, I have another question, if I may. In view of the recent failure of the UK TOX trial, which has been just published in the Lancet. Do you think there will be space for primary screening of ovarian cancer? Thank you. Uh, well, I think I wrote a, a couple of years ago in Lancet Oncology in the editorial, we are not there yet. And I think uh, this is confirmed. Um, and to be honest, when I started in, in the 80s, uh, we thought in 2000 we will be able to screen ovarian cancer and we will uh, not see this, this ugly cancer anymore when in 2000 we thought it would be in 2020. Um, so I'm not so optimistic that uh, in five or ten years we suddenly will have the uh, tools to screen ovarian cancer patients. We were lucky with cervical cancer. Uh, we found the reason why people develop cervical cancer and then the vaccination came. It will take uh, a generation and a lot of effort in vaccinating all women. Uh, but cervical cancer, uh, we should be able to get rid of in, 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 uh, in a very high proportion. For ovarian cancer, uh, 10 years ago, I thought that uh, CTDNA would be the solution. Um, we have done a lot of research in the meantime on, on this topic, and also published on in German Oncology and other, other papers. It's sometimes possible to detect an, an ovarian cancer in the CTDNA, but it, it's also difficult. The problem is always in screening that you have too many false positives. Um, so I'm, I'm not pessimistic, but uh, I think we should we should look, of course, for other ways to detect ovarian cancer. What is essential is to know the reason. I think one of the major things how we can reduce ovarian cancer is, is the prophylactic salpingectomy when, when you do surgery. And this stems from what we learned about BRCA and on the development of high-grade serious ovarian cancer. And um, I think this type of basic knowledge will be much more important to reduce the number of cases of ovarian cancer or to detect them earlier than a simple blood test. According to what we have now, uh, we all have had disappointments uh, like uh, on proteomics uh, 
15, 18 years ago in the Lancet, and we all believed it, and we did a lot of research on proteomics to detect uh, ovarian cancer. And then uh, also with C125, uh, ultrasound, uh, you know the story. Um, so I don't think, unless we unra unravel the how ovarian cancer develops, and probably there are 50 reasons, because there are more than 50 types of ovarian cancer, the 50 reasons why, we why women develop ovarian cancer, if you can detect that, and with uh, new genetic developments, like for instance, what is fantastic is the new mRNA COVID vaccinations. I'm sure it will not be so easy to cure of ovarian cancer than corona with a vaccination, but this technique of, of incorporating mRNA, mRNA in our cells holds a lot of promise in, in my mind. And maybe we can avoid that women develop certain cancers by introducing mRNA in, in their cells or but it's it's not for tomorrow and I don't believe it's it's for the first 10 years because I've had already several disappointments um, not so you have to look very well and do very good translational research and uh, and, and and really fundamental research on, on why a cancer develops and a specific cancer like ovarian cancer, why it develops is essentially essential to know to be able to prevent it. I, I hope I didn't take all hope away because I believe it's possible, eh? but it's not so easy. You must be lucky, like cervical cancer is, 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 is a perfect example because I think now it's depending on us and on our governments and, and how much money we spent to to uh, to vaccinate everybody not only in North America and in Europe but but especially in the countries where cervical cancer is most frequent. So thank you very much. We actually we are strong believers, and uh, this answer for me and for us, I'm sure it was a motivation, not a disappointment. So thank you, thank you. I will pass the word on to Irina for the next question. Thanks again so much. Irina, you were from Innsbruck? Yeah, I'm from Innsbruck. Okay, yes, the name is not uh, Austrian. That's, that's why I wondered. Uh, I'm originally from Ukraine, but I studied in Austria and then I, um, I started to work also in Austria, so. Okay. <laughs> um, so first of all, thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Professor. And um, my question is, why are we still failing to cure ovarian cancer? What do you think? Because we can't screen it. Uh, <laughs> 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 and yes, as you know, it's a silent killer. It's a late diagnosis. Uh, patients are most often discovered at the stage where there are billions and billions and sometimes kilograms of tumor, which which is uh, very, very difficult to cure. I think I, I think the fact that it gives so few and so late symptoms is, is the main reason. And also the reason why we can't screen it right now. Yeah. Uh, thank you for this answer. And my next question is, how do you think we will treat ovarian cancer in 10 years? 
And do you think that we will still need surgery for ovarian cancer in 10 or 20 years? Um, at I think for my presidential talk, when I stopped as president of ESGO or IGCSR both, um, I said that, uh, and I still think so, that the surgery in uh, gynecologic oncology and also in ovarian cancer will become less aggressive and also more targeted, like sentinel lymph nodes. I, I also said, do, do we really think we will continue to look on, on lymph nodes and doing full lymphadenectomies in patients uh, just blindly? I said, no, we will go to sentinel and then probably later we will have enough predictive factors to predict whether a patient would have a lymph node or not, or um, what kind of uh, even treatment uh, she would need. So mm -hmm. I've always teached my fellows that don't concentrate only on surgery. We like to do that as gynecological oncologists and it's, it's our, our backbone, I would say. Uh, but oncology is a lot more it's from translation research to screening and to surgery and, and the treatment, uh, medical treatment. Um, where will the treatment of ovarian cancer go to? Uh, well, one, it, it will not be one treatment. We are already trying to split it according to the type of ovarian cancer. But it's difficult, especially in the rare cancers. Again, there in rare cancer, we need even more cooperation within our country to get these patients centralized, and then with other countries to get enough experience to be able to do uh, one good genetic research, I think, but also other research, but uh, uh, also clinical studies. So I think that uh, in the future, we will get a lot more information on um, what ovarian cancer is and I believe especially genetically is important and we will get targeted treatments which are also adapted to these cancers and one cancer is more difficult than the other one um, and have some of our ovarian cancer which have typical mutations or dysfunctions but we don't have the drugs, but I think this will come. I think we will go to probably 50 different targeted treatments for all of our ovarian cancers. That's the way we have to look in. Will this really debulking surgery then still have a major role? Maybe not, but I, I think this will, reduce, this will reduce anyhow. Same for cervical cancer, also breast cancer surgery. I have a, I have a strength, we, we also do breast cancer in, um, in, in Belgium as a gynecological oncologist. I was trained to only with mastectomy, including the muscle and removing all nodes up, up, up to level three. The surgery has become less, more, maybe more, not easier, but less. That's the, I, that be a, uh, remember this saying that surgery is not important or that uh, surgery uh, becomes easier. It's not easier, but it's it's less. Mm -hmm. And uh, so to answer your question, I don't think, personally, I don't think that in 20 years we will still do debulking surgeries. I don't think so. Okay, but, thank you but, so much. 
That was Maybe. a great answer. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now I think Kike has also some questions. Yes. Hello, dear Professor Bergote. Thank you very much for being here with us today. I think we are very lucky to be able to learn from your long experience in the world of gynecologic oncology. In this context, I was wondering about what would you change in your professional life if you could go, go back in time? Thank you. Uh, that's a difficult question because uh, I've been so lucky in my professional career. I never dreamt I would, I would do what I have been able to do, uh, both in societies, but also specifically in, in trials and, and authorships and, and so on. I, I don't think I, I would like to change something in my professional career. I'm, I'm so satisfied and happy. I'm not so happy I had to retire, but that's, that's the system in Belgium. At 65, you have to retire. Um, luckily, I can still do some clinic and, and of course, a lot of, of research, which I didn't have time to, which I can continue now. But uh, changing things in my professional career, I don't think I can give uh, you any. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you for your interesting answer. Finally, I'm very interested to know what a giant like you usually looks for in a fellow or a trainee. And also, what advice would you give to someone starting out in, in a career, in a, an academic career in gynecology oncology? Thank you. What I look for for fellows is uh, one commitment to the patient. That's the most important, of course. Um, and um, commitment and also communica communication is of course very important and first of all with the patient and secondly in the team. For gynecological oncologists obviously I think it's important to um, to know what the skills, the surgical skills are. Um, I believe that everybody can be learned to operate, but I don't believe that everybody can become a good surgeon. So um, I think I, even the students who start for the first time in the, in the OR, I look and I tell them afterwards, you did it well, if you want, you, you should become a gynecologist or, and after one or two sessions, usually, when you have a lot of experience, you know this can become a good surgeon. Uh, um, that's something which I also look at. And then, like I mentioned already, the, the possibility to to uh, to become a member of, of a team, working together. And then, of course, the fourth for me has always been, is there a scientific interest? You can have a lot of good clinicians and good gynecological oncologists but uh, if I feel they don't have interest in science and in, and in doing the work from the beginning to the end uh, during my whole career I had too many applications for fellowships so I, I say honestly if I have very good ones who, who also are scientifically interested I always took uh, these persons 
uh, even though it's not necessary to become a good gynecological oncologist, I think you, you must be, of course, interested in reading literature and uh, be committed to the to our field. But um, if you have the choice and you have ten people applying, which are very good for one position, of course you you prefer the one who is also has this extra. Okay, thank you. I think it's going to be very very useful for all of us. I think Nico is back with another last question. Yes, thank you. Again, thanks so much. Uh, we are enjoying so much and we are learning a lot. Uh, our last question is, uh, how is the life of a person like you who has reached the top of gynecological oncology after retirement? Mm -hmm. What tools do you think can be useful to plan correctly this period of life? Thank you. Well, it's only six months or seven months now, so it's still early. Yeah, maybe. Uh, uh, the next month. <laughs> um, well, for me, it was important that I could continue in clinic, uh, even though I'm no longer chairman since October and uh, not a full staff member anymore. That's the system in, in my country. And that's good. You know, when you're 25, you know, when you get 65, you need another plan. So what is for me important is that I still have contact with the clinic, but uh, this is uh, uh, only one day per week, so that's not a lot. Um, but I continue to do a lot of research and a lot of papers which I wanted to write uh, have been written. So I think I will write, uh, be more often in PubMed this year than, than the, the former years because I can finalize some uh, scientific works which I wanted to do, um, plus uh, I'm involved still in, in a lot of trials, um, both uh, where I was involved as PI or um, as a member of the IDMC, the Independent Data Monitoring Committee and this type of thing. So um, I still, my wife uh, convinced me that I'm still doing more than a full-time job, but it's not less before, of course. So I think it's important um, to not to stop because I, I'm honest, I didn't have time to read books, almost nothing, or have other hobbies. I had hobbies and slowly they're taking up again. Uh, but um, for me, it was important to, to just not to go from uh, working day and night from uh, Monday morning to Sunday evening to nothing. So that, that, that would not have been, so you need time to, for the transition. And, and I feel this time, I think in an adequate way because I'm able to do what I love to do, that's research. Of course, I'm, I'm sure that uh, you would be even more busy busier now than what you were before, I'm, I'm, I, I can bet it. <laughs> not more busy because that was not possible, that's what my wow. wife always said, but uh, so I have more time for the family of course, but uh, um, um, I can do what I want um, and uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm very happy in my, in my current situation, I'm not frustrated, not at all, I'm, I'm happy when I look back to my career I'm, of course, very honored that young people like you, five, are interested in, in talking to an old guy. What was, what was his experience? 
even though I still feel young. Um, but uh, of course, uh, for you guys, I'm very old. Um, um, so I'm happy I have time to do this type of things because before I, I uh, retired, I didn't have time to do this type of interviews. It's a well, <laughs> I think it's not just for the five of us, but will be thousands of, uh, of fellows, uh, residents, and gynecological oncology young trainees we will learn a lot and be more, more and more inspired by by your talks from today. I'm sure that uh, this podcast will be seen over and over again. So thank you very much for, the partic for participating and for the outstanding contribution that you have made to the field of gynecologic cancer. We, have, we all have learned so much from your work, which will influence generations of surgeons to come. It was an honor to talk to you today and uh, we really thank you so much from the deepest part of our hearts, really. Thank you, I'm very honored and I'm very grateful for uh, you guys doing it and, and uh, taking gynecological oncology to the next level. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so, so much, much for your time, Professor. You're welcome.